Has having babies impacted your career trajectory? Are you frustrated with the domestic load you carry at home? Women are now five times as grumpy about (laughs) the lack of domestic equality at home than they were before the pandemic. Today on Feed, Play, Love, how equality in the workplace is directly linked to equality in the home and how what we learned during the COVID pandemic may offer us a better future. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. How did you cope during the various lockdowns over the last few years? My husband works in construction, so I was often homeschooling during the day and working into the night. It was tough, and I know I'm not alone. Research shows that women bore the brunt of domestic labour throughout the pandemic. COVID brought work and home crashing together in a way we've never experienced before. But from the challenge of those years, we may be able to forge a new way ahead. Christine Zivica is a journalist, feminist writer, activist and mum. She's also the author of the latest crikey read called Leaning Out, A Fairer Future for Women at Work in Australia. Hi, Christine. How are you? Hi. Very well. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. I love this book. I've got to say, it was pretty grim at the beginning. (laughs) It does brighten up. It does. I promise. It does brighten up. Um, It's so... uh, confronting to read the statistics you include in this book. But even before the COVID-19 pandemic, which you directly address here, equality in the workplace was already a problem, wasn't it, in Australia? It was. So I wrote the book for sort of two audiences in mind. I really wanted the women of Australia who had been through the ringer, who had borne the brunt of the COVID pandemic, um, both at work and at home. So we know that they were more likely to lose their jobs. We know on the home front, they were doing on average 2.8 hours more of combined care and domestic work a day. And that was about 30% more than their male partner. We'll talk more about that later. And I, you know, through a series of statistics and kind of cascading realizations that I myself had, that I think other people had, some anecdotes that I tell in the book, I wanted it to be an affirming experience for the women of Australia to read about how, you know, in the burnout chapter, the burnout gender gap. So there's always been a gap where women have been more likely to experience burnout than men. Um, That burnout gender gap doubled during the course of the pandemic. Women are now five times as grumpy about (laughs) the lack of domestic equality at home than they were before the pandemic. So if you thought it in the last three years, you're not alone there. If you felt it, if this was your experience, you're not the only one. So I wanted to affirm that this has been not just an individual experience, but in a collective experience, and then to explore a little bit about what that means and what we can do with that in this kind of context that we're now in, how the pandemic has led through the breakthrough. But I also wanted to kind of deconstruct this really dominant strain of um, empowerment feminism, lean-in feminism, on the 10th anniversary of Sheryl Sandberg's kind of iconic book, um, one of the most downloaded books, according to Amazon, but interestingly, also one of the most unfinished books. (laughs) (laughs) So people bought it, but they didn't always finish it, which I think is a bit interesting. But it's the 10-year anniversary of that. And when you look at those statistics, that backward slide, 
in terms of Australia's global ranking on a variety of gender indicators. Most of that happened, if you're a geek like me and you looked through the statistics year by year, most of that happened from 2013 onwards, particularly when this sort of very individual dominant strain of empowerment feminism was unleashed in Australia. And I thought that was really interesting. So the other audience for the book was the women who went all in. I wanted to create a safe space for us to talk about how that had failed to deliver. And I think a lot of women realized how, as, as the fragile foundations of their working lives were exposed over the course of the pandemic, they realized some for the first time how incredibly useless that was and how little it had delivered them. And I wanted to create that safe space, maybe go back in our little time machine <laughs> um, for those of a certain vintage who came of age in the girl power generation. Ask the question, I do ask the question in the book, what happens when mm. girl power grows up? We spoke about this before, that there was a period in the 90s where uh, feminism was a, a dirty word. And certainly even with Lean In and the book there, um, I think there has been a, a perception prior to the Me Too movement, that feminism had done its work, that we were all in a good place. So for those people who have been through those periods and not understood just how impacted women can be from inequality, let's start on the domestic front, which is where we all feel it deeply. Why is equality in the home so connected to equality in the workplace? There's a very popular phrase that without equality for men at home, women will not experience equality in the workplace. And that's been unpacked over the years, uh, most recently here in Australia with Annabelle Crabb's excellent and iconic book, The Wife Drought. I mean, that's a well-known truth. The interesting thing is that this inequality, the chores gap, was once on the front line of feminism. So we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the iconic women's strikes, you know, like don't iron while the strike is hot. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Women took the signs to the street. You had the, the wages for housework campaign. And 50 years on, it hasn't changed. Things changed a little bit. And that, that so-called chores gap, you know, the difference in the amount of time that men and women spend doing unpaid care and domestic work, closed a little bit up until the 80s. And in most countries, the way that they measure it is they do a time use survey. Uh, we haven't done a time use survey in Australia since 2006. Wow. Um, through a feminist campaign, it was reinstituted. So we should get the results of that. Interesting. I'll come back and talk about it if you want in yes, November. Please. I think we're expecting them in November of this year. But if you look at time use surveys in other countries, it hasn't closed at all, really, since the 1980s. Um, internationally, that gap has closed seven minutes in 15 years. So, <laughs> yeah, we plateaued. And even though it's a known problem, and it's one of the key drivers of the gender pay gap, Australia has some of the highest part-time work rates for women in the world. And contributing to that is the fact that they carry that disproportionate load at home. It hasn't shifted. And I will I will guarantee you when those new time use surveys figures come out in November, it won't have shifted 
here in Australia because it hasn't in the rest of the world. Why would Australia, particularly with those figures about, you know, sliding in the global gender index, why would Australia be an outlier? I can't, can't imagine that. But how did that happen? How did this issue that used to be on the feminist front line 50 years after these iconic women's strikes, 50 years after, after the Wages for Housework campaign, how is it still a thing? To that point, um, I want to bring in another personal example because one of my best friends has been a stay-at-home mum since her boys were born and they're now, one's about to go to high school, the other's still in primary school, one of them has special needs and her partner works and earns a reasonable income. I find it very hard to explain to her, although I try very hard, about how important her unpaid labour is. Mm. How would you explain to a woman who has made those sacrifices, who still feels like they need to ask their partner for money to go out? Or another example is a friend was sitting down to dinner. She's also a stay-at-home mum with a friend and she'd paid for dinner and her husband had said to the friend, oh, I paid for that dinner. And she looked at him and said, no, actually, we paid for that dinner, but I think that's very uncommon. How would you explain to those women the value of their work? Well, I'll start by putting a figure on it, um, which might contribute to a bit of a, what Oprah calls an aha moment. So the monetary value of unpaid care work in Australia is $650 billion. <laughs> wow. That's the equivalent of 50.6% of GDP. That makes it Australia's largest industry, larger than the formal economy. It's the equivalent of three mining industries. Wow. So ponder that as Which a value. Which is amazing, yeah. but how do we make that count? You yeah. know, it's not something that feels like it's part of the economy as we know it. I think that's changing. So in the book, I have a chapter from career feminism to care feminism, uh, it's, it's if I have to, it's like trying to choose your favorite child. <laughs> so I had to sort of name one of my favorite chapters in that book. It would most definitely be that that chapter. And in that chapter, I chart how, particularly over the course of the pandemic, we've moved from this real dominant strain of career feminism to what I call care feminism, where we collectively have the pennies dropped in terms of valuing women's paid and unpaid care. So just to give you an example, who it, it was the women in the low-paid caring professions that kept us going over the course of the pandemic. It was women who um, bore the disproportionate brunt of the unpaid caring work at home. But without that effort, without that labor, we really would not have gotten through. And I start with a speech that Sam Mostyn, who's the president and chief executive of women, gave at the National Press Club. And I start about I start with this sort of the context of watching that speech and sort of expecting kind of typical career feminism, women on boards, <laughs> um, women in the C-suite, et cetera, et cetera. And she talked about how Australia was a lucky country. You know, she used that concept of Australia being a lucky country because it had benefited from women's unpaid and low-paid care work for so long. This is what had kept the economy afloat. This is what had kept our 
society afloat, but we were running out of luck Mm. (laughs) because we had taken it for granted for so long and that needed to change. And there were, there are a few policy shifts and things that need to change um, that are really emblematic of the kinds of care feminism and the things that we as care feminists are now collectively asking for to value care, to underpin and support our society's carers. So one of those we're seeing right now is, um, you know, we have a massive shortage of early years educators, 6,500. If we want to actually implement the new changes in early years education, we're going to need another 35,000. They they went on strike earlier this week because they (laughs) asked to work and paid peanuts for one of the most valuable jobs in our society. We need to address the undervaluing of women's work particularly in the caring professions. That's also the case in the the aged care profession. The other thing that we need to do is to push forward on parental leave equality, which is a a conversation that we're having as well, because uh, getting back to that comment that I made earlier, we won't have equality for women at work until we have equality for men at home. You know, we can talk about it in terms of cost, but we can also talk about it in terms of benefits. We know that it brings a social double dividend, a triple dividend even. It brings a a dividend in terms of, um, you know, men's and fathers' relationships with their children. Um, But it also brings an economic dividend in terms of empowering women to go back to work, to work more hours if that's what they wish to do, to contribute to their super. We have a super gap in this country. Women over the age of 55 are the fastest growing portion of the homeless population. Every time I hear that, it breaks my heart. Mm. I have heard all of those things many times in terms of um, parental leave and the things that need to change. Universal childcare. Universal childcare, all of the things <laughs> yes. that make 100% sense economically and socially. But if we're talking to people who only care about money, even then it makes sense to do these things. I feel in some ways that many women at home who are caring for their children find it all a bit academic. And one of the things you write about in the book is about this kind of um, experience with feminism where women have ended up with less power, less agency about it. And what I really love about the way you explain it is when you talk about anger, because I think even if it all sounds academic, Mm. there are a lot of angry women, a lot of angry mothers who do love being with their children, love nurturing and providing and all of those things, but are fed up to the teeth of the sacrifices that are just assumed they will make in terms of their career and things like that. So I'm wondering if you can talk to me about anger and why we don't have to see it as that kind of trope of the hairy underarmed feminist yelling at men. The angry woman. The angry woman, which I quite like at the moment. Yes. Yes. I mean, that that was partly why. It was that fear of being painted with that angry brush that contributed to this need, this perception that, you know, feminism needed a rebrand and needed a a refresh. We were going to be friendlier, happier. Wear bras again. Wear bras again, (laughs) wear lipstick, and just be a bit more cheerful about all of our oppression. Um, Yeah, didn't 
didn't work, but we can have a good laugh. We can have a good laugh. <laughs> we can definitely have a good laugh about some of the more, I call them my misadventures and power posing excesses of, um, you know, that kind of empowerment feminism. On anger. I think it's good to be angry. And here's why. They've done studies that actually show that anger is psychologically healthy because it's what you call an approach emotion. Uh-huh. So it encourages you like to, you know, I can't say um, naughty words here on a parenting podcast, but to get your <laughs> SH, you know, whatever, <laughs> together and approach and tackle the problem. It um, releases, you know, hormones and focuses the mind on the task at hand and you run at the problem. And there's a lot of problems that we can run at. So think of it as fuel, as every good feminist who's been kicking around for a long time, I know, and it's always important to remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants, and um, I certainly do, they use their anger. The other thing for me is that, and I often um, refer back to a Rebecca Solnit quote, is that anger I find ultimately hopeful. And Rebecca Solnit, who is an iconic American writer, essayist, one of my heroes, she often says that hope isn't a lottery ticket that you sit on the sofa and, you know, you're feeling lucky. She calls it an axe that you use to break down a door in an emergency. And that likewise, you know, that idea of anger being an approach emotion, that is a active definition of hope. It is an axe that you use to break down a door in an emergency and on a variety of fronts in a variety of ways. And if any of your listeners are feeling that, they're feeling that anger, they're feeling after the pandemic that we are in a sort of emergency situation. Yeah. Reach for that metaphorical axe and break it down in an emergency. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I love the idea of redefining what it is to be an angry feminist. It's just about making it a more even playing ground, which has been, it has not been achieved. Let's be clear about that. Um, Now, I want to go back to pre the lockdown Mm. to a more, let shall we say, optimistic Christine. Well, actually, that was, I think that was during the first lockdown. During the the story that you're talking, (laughs) that you're referring to. And we are all changed since then. But I do think at that beginning of us all coming home to work, there was a sense of optimism that it would result in a redistribution of domestic labour because it couldn't be ignored anymore, right? You know, that idea that if you're the one always doing the washing up, people just start thinking a fairy does it. They don't actually see you're doing it. But when The they... invisible labour would become visible yes. because we'd all be in the house at the same yes. time and... The men we live with couldn't, you know, not see the washing and not see the dishes and maybe not see the children, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't know about your children, but my children is pretty hard not to see. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, They're a noisy bunch. Um, Yeah. So I think the story that you're referring to is sort of Pollyanna Christina. So I, you know, as we've discussed, I've been around a little bit of a, a, a wee while. I've been writing about various gender equality, feminist issues here in Australia and elsewhere for for a while. And I often write about domestic equality or lack thereof. It is one of the subjects that I wrote about before the pandemic and write about in this book. I keep coming back to it because, like I said, it's really interesting and intensely frustrating to me that it used to be at the forefront of, you know, 
the feminist campaign and then it sort of receded um, and we haven't been making up ground. So I've written about that over the years. And then we, we went into that first lockdown. Because I'd been writing about this pretty consistently, the ABC sent, I couldn't go into the studio, so they sent Zoe Daniel, who is now the Teal representative for Goldstein, but she was still at the ABC at the time, to do a story on it. And she interviewed me. She came with the camera crew. We sat on my front lawn with my neighbor and his French bulldogs walking by, just looking at us like, what is going on there? (laughs) Um, Many weird scenes in lockdown. And I just yammered on at her sort of, so optimistically, um, and I'm in my defense, I wasn't alone. There were many experts who thought that that return to home would make the invisible visible. It would also um, challenge that entrenched resistance in some workplaces to flexible work, which would enable maybe more men to take up that option, and then that would help redress the balance for a variety of reasons. So I was just yammering on it. And so he's telling her, <laughs> oh, you know, I, I think this could be a big change. And I have a picture of me sitting on my front lawn. I was taken by the ABC. Optimistic Christina. Then a few months later, uh, the University of Melbourne did a study, which was essentially a sort of a time use survey study, and found that, you know, some of our hopes hadn't really materialized. So everybody was doing more in men and father's defense, they were doing more. Women were doing even more. So women were doing 2.8 on average, more hours a day. So if you needed to put a, a, a figure on that just represents that kind of, like if you see yourself in that figure, if that represents how completely exhausted you were, that's probably why. And it was about 30% more than, than their male partners. And that was really, that's just confronting that it just goes to show you yet again how deeply entrenched these norms are and how hard they are to shift. So we need something pretty significant to happen to shift it. And one of the things that I write about in the book that I think is not a silver bullet, but a significant change that will help get us there is a move towards parental leave and equality in Australia. It's to create an environment where men have comparable amounts of leave after their children are born to their partners, men and women in heterosexual relationships. And, you know, I, you know, different families are in different situations, gender diverse people, same sex couples. This tends to be an issue. So let's just like talk about what we're talking about in heterosexual couples. So we're talking about men and women in heterosexual relationships. It tends to be that's where the issue is. So that's what we're talking about here. Yes. Yeah, it just goes to show you how hard those norms are to shift mm. at home and that we need a really significant intervention. And the pandemic was not a significant <laughs> intervention enough, <laughs> even though optimistic Christina sitting on her front lawn with Zoe Daniel had kind of hoped it might be. Yeah. Um, and I understand, you know, the frustration, but I think um, it's, we can channel that frustration and some of the insights. And that's ultimately what this book is about on a number of different fronts in relation to women and work on in different areas, you know, different areas from women's safety at work to, you know, the chores gap to care feminism and the undervaluing of women's care. It's ultimately about how the pandemic 
facilitated these cascading realizations mm. and has given us, I think, insights into where we can go next, where we need to go next. Okay. So speaking to the mother at home that has the anger that is now holding her metaphorical axe, mm. about to go smashing it around, what can we do as individuals to try and keep this potential moment of opportunity open for change? As individuals, we're probably somewhat limited <laughs> in what we can do, which is, I guess, also partly the sort of theory of the book is that the limits of this feminism that was all about individual solutions to really thorny, complex problems, collectively, we can do a lot. And we can collectively focus together on pushing change on those systemic structural. And I know that sounds a bit geeky, but the, the, in plain English, we're talking about the things like universal affordable childcare. We're talking about the implementation of Kate Jenkins' 55 recommendations for safe uh, respect at work. Little known fact, there is actually an Australian Human Rights Commission inquiry into pregnancy discrimination. And it also has recommendations. Came out in 2014. I have looked at it. Yes, it's sitting in someone's drawer Nothing's somewhere. Nothing's been done. Let's pull it out of the drawer. Yes. <laughs> Let's dust it off. Let's it's have still a look a thing. there. It's yeah, it's still, still a thing. Um, and now I've been on a little sort of mini book tour for a couple of days, and I've been talking to a few people. And one woman came along to an event that I had in Canberra. And she told this story about um, being heavily pregnant and her workplace had Amy Cuddy. Remember Amy Cuddy and the power posing? Yes. Come in to do a workshop. She has a picture of herself heavily pregnant. Oh my power posing next to Amy Cuddy. A few months later, made redundant. No. First one out the door and along with the, you know, you, we, we just, um, you know, your circumstances have changed. We're not sure that you'll be as committed. And I actually said that to her. Yes. And she came up to the microphone at this event in, in Canberra and it was just that, that absolute like stark juxtaposition of, you know, these workplaces that talk that empowerment talk, but don't walk the walk where it really matters. And is there a better example of just how that fails to deliver because it's so surface, it's individual, and it's not getting to the structural thing. So take some time, <laughs> read the book. Yes, read the um, book. But, you know, it's not just my book. There's other wonderful resources and writers working in this space. And think about those those structural issues where we need movement. Think about how you can join forces with people who are doing work in that area. The context of change, use your vote. Yep. The power of the women's vote. We can talk about that a little bit um, at the last election. That that changed everything. You know, I did a story in 2019 where everyone thought that the women's vote was going to be definitive, and it wasn't. And I remember talking to a professor who runs the Australian Election Survey, and he said to me, oh, you know, women in Australia don't vote in a sort of rights-based political culture. And then two weeks before the last election, I saw him quoted in the Sydney Morning Herald saying, oh, women, it's going to be huge. <laughs> and I thought, okay, women now in Australia vote yeah. with a rights-based political culture. That's changed. Use your vote, join forces, 
keep the pressure up around these, you know, these systemic structural issues that we've been talking about here today. And I really, really, truly believe that there's an opportunity for a breakthrough. Like you can just feel it in the ether. You can feel it all around us. Um, we have a new government that's prepared to platform these issues, to have these conversations. I saw more coverage around Equal Pay Day two weeks ago than I've seen in the 10 years since I've been in Australia. And, you know, the gender pay gap is essentially a representation of all, a composite figure that represents all the things that we've been talking about today. So we're talking about these things. Solutions are being put on the table. It's being talked about in political circles. It's being talked about in activist circles. It's all coming together. Become part of that. Yeah. Oh, I love ending on that hope because as I said, it's pretty grim reading at the beginning, but it is also fueled to the fire. So Christine, thank you so much for this book and thank you for chatting with us. Thank you for having me. That's Christine Savika. She's the author of Leaning Out. You'll find links to the copy of the book in the notes of this episode. And I highly encourage you to go out and read. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review or favourite. That way you'll get all the new episodes, plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedplaylove at listener.com. Bye for now.